and the Ever Given ran aground in the Suez Channel. The world talks about supply chains and loss of profits. But what about the people? The people at this ship, the people at other ships? How great are the challenges they really face? We will discuss how the life of a seafarer looks like and which major obstacles need to be solved. I'm Julia Hernig, Assistant Professor at the Erasmus School of Law, and today we ask, what is wrong with maritime trade? The sustainable law talk right from the center of trade. Rotterdam. Welcome to the fourth episode of this podcast where we try to tackle patterns of trade which developed over centuries and discuss potential solutions. For our fourth episode, I'm more than happy to welcome our two guest speakers, Helene Perfos and Kirsten Buhle. Welcome. First, I would like to introduce Helene Perfos. Helene Perfos is a port chaplain based in the port of Rotterdam since already 2001. She's working for the Protestant Church in the Netherlands for seafarers worldwide. That involves, among other things, pastoral care in a crisis, ship visiting, warm contacts with the seafarer center in the port of Rotterdam, and a general involvement with welfare and social and cultural concerns in the maritime industry. Our second guest is Kirsten Boulet. Um, she is a lawyer at WebNH Advocaten and specialized in maritime labor law. In the past 10 years, she has assisted countless seafarers. She also advised uh, and advises shipping companies, wharfs, manning agents, work councils and maritime labor unions. She regularly sets foot on a ship, sometimes a ship that is judicially sold by WebNH Advocaten for the recovery of crew claims. The Facts so in times of e-commerce, all we care about is how fast the product arrives and, well, wh whether we can use it, basically. And often we do not care about the how. How did it arrive at our front door and how and who was basically involved? In our podcast, we already talked about the how from different angles. So we talked about the container shortage, the container supply, the emissions and the documentation that is involved in the transport. But one essential part is missing. And I'm really, really happy that we talk about this part today. And these are the people, the people that make transport possible. These are the truck drivers, the pilots and ground handlers at airports and train stations. And there are, of course, the seafarer. Helena, you work with seafarers for more than 20 years. What is special about the seafarer compared to, for instance, a truck driver? Well, more than anything, the, the shipping world is a worldwide international business. So um, you must imagine that seafarers are not going home in the evening at five o'clock uh, or even after a week. They are away from home and from, from their family, from their loved ones from for a very long time, in general between six to nine months. And so crews on board, they are not large, uh, especially, of course, not regarding cruise ships, but um, most merchant navy vessels have crews around 20, 25 persons with different countries of origin, uh, different languages, and a couple of countries are our main suppliers, you could say, of seafarers. And we are talking here about the Philippines, India, countries in Eastern Europe. And this, this the global maritime industry, as we call it, aims for minimum wages, minimum costs, so as low as possible. And then the crew is mostly 
the thing where they um, where they sort of can arrange that. Yeah. Uh, okay. So they operate in, in general under pressure. Yeah, it's 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 a family under pressure basically. <laughs> so it is. It sounds really really complex, and uh, I can imagine that this makes it hard for seafarer to have adequate protection. So to whom can they speak, Kirsten? So there's not always an easy answer to that. There are many different parties involved. You have a ship owner, of course, and a manager of the ship, and this is not always the same as the ship owner. Uh, there may be different employers and different manning agencies. And then there is the captain, of course. The captain gives the instructions to the seafarers, and he represents the ship owner and manager and employer on board. So everybody has contracts with each other, uh, but not everyone has a contract with the seafarer. And all these players, as Helena already mentioned, come from different countries, from Liberia, Panama, India, to the Netherlands maybe, the Philippines, and Poland. So there are different jurisdictions at play. Uh, and there are many actors that a seafarer could maybe talk to. And that's interesting for a lawyer to figure out um, but it may be difficult for a seafarer to know who he or she must turn to. Okay. Yeah, and especially the position of the captain is, is a very difficult one. As the master, he or she is, is responsible for the vessel and the crew, and also to damage, for instance, that, that happens uh, to other parties, for instance, an oil spill or something. But at the same time, also representative of the ship owner and company so there can be many conflicting interests um, and a captain can fall between two stools or, or as we say in Dutch, between shore and ship. Yeah, okay. But th then, well, this, is, this sounds so uh, stressful and it also sounds so unpleasant and complex to, so that I sometimes wonder why on earth do people opt for becoming a seafarer. So aren't there any other options or, or what, what makes them do this choice, opt for a seafarer, becoming a seafarer? Well, for many seafarers, um, it is that compared to the, the normal income in their home countries, uh, many seafarers, they, they earn a very good salary. Yeah? Being at sea means that you are able to provide for your family, uh, with good housing, furthermore, a good education for your children. And, and family, that means often extended family. Uh, many nieces and nephews are there who are going to university because their uncle is at sea. Yeah, okay, this is sometimes also kind of different to the Western culture nowadays where we kind of live more on our own and maybe, yeah, that that's true, yeah, and yeah. Well, and, and some seafarers really love their profession, uh, working at sea. Okay, that, that's also good to know. I mean, that they are not only doing it just uh, out of duty. Um, okay, but except for the ones that love their job, or also, also for them, um, I assume that the daily work of a seafarer is extremely challenging. Um, you mentioned, or you both mentioned, conflicts, and they do not have a lot of space. Um, and I assume that not becoming seasick is then probably the most basic requirement for such a seafarer. Well, that would be nice. <laughs> uh, but let's state that, that 
many seafarers, they do love their job. Uh, they, they love being at sea. Um, so let's not victimize seafarers. I know, of course. Um, <laughs> but they definitely face some, some challenges, really, um, because the place where they work is also the place where they live uh, 24-7 for months on end. And being on board, it, it does something to your body. Yeah? The, the vessel itself is moving, and it's a moving environment at sea, waves and such. And it's not only seasickness, uh, which can be a problem, but also, for instance, the vibration that permeates the ship. So the impact um, on someone's being, body and mind, of, of steel surroundings. No, no green at all. No green at all. So um, in many ways, the, the space of seafarers is restricted, stri- uh, restricted in um, physically, because there's a small ship on a huge ocean, uh, but culturally, because there are many uh, seafarers from different countries, um, economically, because all that you earn goes home. Yeah. Um, if, uh, I could say spiritually as well, because many seafarers are religious, but religion is one of the big taboos on board of a ship. You don't talk about it. So um, that makes it really, really difficult. And I, I have heard many seafarers refer to their ship as a prison. Oh, how awful. Uh, well, uh, I, I assume that you, Kirsten, also came in contact with, with some challenges they face. And um Yes, well, uh, a similar also to Helene ma- and the ones that Helena mentioned. Um, but also they face some challenges that you and I with our desk job don't uh, have to deal with. For instance, if we get sick, we go to our own physician down the street. Yeah, true. Um, <laughs> But seafarers, you know, they may need medical help when they're at sea, uh, which is mm-hmm. challenging. But or, or they are in a foreign port where the seafarer does not speak the language. And often a ship manager tries to assist from abroad, but language and culture are always a barrier then that they have to overcome. And we, we, we people not being seafarer, we already struggle when we move from one country, uh, from one town to another and try to find a new doctor yeah i can yeah yeah well that is true i mean recently there was this case of a seafarer who was really severely wounded in a, in a port in china and uh, the ambulance staff was unwilling to put him in the ambulance uh, for fear of covid and so his colleagues they were tasked to do that uh, to put their colleague in the, in the ambulance and it's a long story but there was all kinds of trouble uh, at the hospital. So in the end of the day, the seafarer came back on board, which was dangerous for himself and also a, a huge strain on the crew. And ship headed to Japan to get adequate uh, help for this medical help for this seafarer. So this kind of thing has, has a huge impact on board for the crew, but also on the people at home for... Uh, the wife of the captain who heard the whole story for the pe- people at the office taking care of uh, uh, doing the management of this vessel. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And all we then hear in the news is, oh, there is a delay of of, of uh, my iPhone charger or something like exactly. this. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, I think it's good that we now put it in, in perspective a bit. 
Um, these are circumstances that none of us can really imagine or would like to be in. So I, I really, I personally, I cannot, uh, I, I would, would not wish to be in such a situation. And nevertheless, seafarers are the engine of the world's maritime trade. So there are some protective mechanisms, and I would like to discuss these, these mechanisms at least in the second part. For this part, I would like to come back to what you, Kirsten, said about the complexity and the number of parties involved and the different contracts. So let's take the example of the ship of, this, of the size of the Ever Given, so this big vessel. The ship cannot be refloated. Manufacturers are waiting. Media all over the world is reporting about delays in supply chains. And I assume that the pressure on a crew is immense. What are the needs of the crew in such a situation? Yeah, well, um, an incident like that, that, that is a huge mental blow as yeah. well. So the seafarers feel that they, they have failed in their duty as seafarers, which is to safely transport goods. Uh, so mostly it is not clear right away who is to blame. So probably the captain is in trouble or even in protective custody. And what they really, really need and at that moment is clarification as much as possible. Where are they? Where do they go to? What, are, what can they expect? Um, and other needs, of course, can be food or uh, medical help. Yeah, we also see in our practice uh, seafarers that are sometimes stuck, so not necessarily uh, such as in the Ever Given where a ship has run aground, but more where um, there are financial trouble at the ship owner or ship manager. Um, and they need to stay longer on board than intended, and their aim is, well, they want to be relieved and get home as soon as possible. But in case of a near bankruptcy of the ship owner, this can be a very long road. We once assisted an Indian crew that was stuck on a large motor tanker at an anchorage place before the coast of Aruba, so these seafarers could not get to shore. Right. And some were there for over a year, oh my God. overstaying their employment contracts and not getting paid. So you're basically stuck, not getting paid for your time on board. And they tried to stay busy and, and to stay sane, basically. So one month they played cricket on deck and then a, another month they played cards just to get there, you know, get get through it together. Yeah. So the tension on board, I think it was almost unbearable for the crew. It's hard for us to imagine, of course. Um, but this, this not knowing when you will be able to get home. Uh, and especially now in the COVID pandemic, traveling is a major issue on top of that. Yeah, that's true. And and th this reminds me of what you said, that it's kind of a, like a prison, or that they understand yes. it as such. Thank you very much to you both for this insight, and now I'm looking forward to the second part. Thank you. The legal issues. So we talked about the international character of business, of the seafarer, and for employees that live and work in one country, labor law-related issues can be solved with the employer and before local courts, which is already a challenge for people, for normal people. So in case of a seafarer, not even the national territory where they are working is certain. 
What are the historical options for seafarer, or what is the development in general? So uh, already for many decades, the majority of the states uh, worldwide have granted the seafarer a special right of recourse for unpaid crew claims. Okay. It is internationally recognized that seafarers are, on the one hand, the driving force behind the transportation of cargo goods and passengers at sea, but on the other end, uh, they have to work in an international complex arena, and that may weaken their legal position. So therefore, many nations uh, allow seafarers to recover their unpaid claims from the vessel, irrespective of who the owner is of the vessel, or irrespective of who the employer is. Right. So, and such a claim we call uh, a claim that has maritime lien. Mm -hmm. And in addition, um, their claim has priority over mortgage. So this means that the seafarers are paid before the bank is paid. Well, normally the bank takes it all, right? Yeah. It's <laughs> the first yeah. the first one yeah. uh, to get the money. Um, but in many countries, it is the case that the seafarers uh, go before the bank. So they, in general, have a strong right of recourse upon the vessel. And in this respect, on paper, they have a relatively strong position. Normal shore-based employees like you and I don't have these rights. Yeah, okay, so um, you said they have a relatively strong position on paper. So how does it work in practice? Can you maybe give an example or something like this? Well, it's uh, quite straightforward, actually. If a, if a seafarer has a claim and he has asked but doesn't get paid, he can arrest the vessel in many countries and he, he can hold it there in ports until the claim is paid. Or if there's discussion, for instance, about the, the claim itself, until a guarantee is provided. So this means that the funds for payment of the claim are secured. And if this does not happen, a seafarer can also decide to continue to a judicial sale of the vessel. So basically, a seafarer can sell a motor tanker for his unpaid wages. Okay, so not its own uh, place of work. Yes, basically, <laughs> yes. But then uh, the seafarer must have a crew claim and he must also be in a position to start legal proceedings. And there, there are many difficulties often. Sometimes the question is what the seafarer is entitled to. It's not always clear in the contract what the seafarer should get. Okay, and I assume that here the Maritime Labour Convention comes into play um, for the audience, maybe, uh, the convention was drafted in 2006 and sought to remedy the major uncertainties. Kirsten, can you explain what the MLC, so we will, we're going to call it MLC here, um, what it is? What is this convention? Well, MLC is an important instrument for seafarers. Uh, as you said already, in 2006, agreement was reached about minimum seafarer rights. But it took a while uh, before the convention, enter, convention entered into force. This was in 2013, and that was because sufficient states had to ratify this convention. And states were quite reluctant at first. And now you see more and more states ratifying MLC, 
But there are still important countries that have not done so, such as, well, the United States. Okay, yeah, that's really a major player. Um, what is the content? So what is in? So the convention sets out minimum requirements regarding conditions of employment, uh, accommodation, recreational facilities, food, health protection, medical care, and social security protection. Um, and there are two things, I think, that this convention make rather special when we look at a compliance and enforcement uh, perspective. First, the convention adjudicates responsibilities to flag states, so that's the state uh, which flag the vessel flies, um, but also to port states and to labor supplying company, uh, countries. So uh, Helena already mentioned that, uh, like the Philippines and India, they're yeah. huge seafarer supplying countries. Okay. And if a vessel flies the flag of a state party, this state has speci specific responsibilities to secure compliance. And this also applies to a port state. So a port state must make sure that the convention is followed on board visiting ships. Okay, and um, just for the audience, the port state means the state where the port is located, right? Exactly, yeah. yes. Okay. Yeah. And then another... Um, well, particular aspect of the convention is that vessels must have an MLC certificate. So uh, they must prove that their vessels MLC compliant to visit ports of MLC countries or to fly the flag of an MLC country. Okay, that, that sounds at least promising and, and rather complex and like a good protective mechanism. But Helena, uh, Did it bring, so from your experience, did it bring the uh, desired improvements in practice? Yeah, well, from the, from the welfare point of view, um, there are some major changes for the good. For instance, the decreased number of arrested ships. Mm -hmm. So those are ships that are not allowed to leave the port. Uh, and the fact that, um, that those minimum requirements for accommodation, for facilities, for food, etc., Uh, that they are clearly defined, that means that the situation does not easily spiral out of control. Um, I mean, the, the problem doesn't arise okay, in the beginning. Yeah. So, so if necessary, port state can intervene and ship owners, they know that they can't get away with some things. And uh, that, of course, is the situation in Rotterdam, where the Dutch government has ratified the MLC, Uh, it doesn't mean that in other ports where they have no ratification, the situation, uh, well, it can be as it ever can be as bad as it ever was actually. Yeah. Okay. Then, then it's also basically bad luck or good luck for the seafarer where they end up and where the conflicts arise. Um, but if I understand this correctly, the MLC does not provide for a particular minimum wage, right? So no income. <laughs> in numbers. Yes, that's correct. Uh, MLC only recommends following an international minimum guideline. It is not a mandatory provision. And setting a particular minimum wage, it's considered a, well, a really sovereign issue. So it's very difficult to reach international consensus about this particular topic. Okay, um, but... Um Except for, for this issue, which is a major issue, of course, but um, except for this, the MLC at least sounds to me quite waterproof. 
And combined with the experience you, Helena, stated, it sounds like a big step towards better conditions for CFAR. Is this right also from the legal perspective? Well, I think it's definitely a big step forward for seafarers, but there is a difference between being entitled to something and actually getting it. And you see this particularly in the maritime sector. Seafarers do not always receive what they should get. So they may not be in a position to step up themselves and, and claim their right. And when push comes to shove, the authorities of the flag or the port state cannot actually make sure that the seafarer gets what he's entitled to. A port state can detain a ship, but this is uh, considered uh, like a final resort and generally does not immediately resolve the matter. Okay. And they have to wait, yes. Yeah, and, and also seafarers are also quite often hesitant or even reluctant to even mention their minimum rights because they fear losing their job and, and, and being blacklisted they are labeled as troublemakers. Okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, this blacklisting, maybe for the audience, then it's uh, it's a list where seafarers were put on and basically they are not get, they do not get any future offers then to um, sail again. Exactly. Um, so maybe as an, as an overview uh, for, for the audience, which claims do the seafarer have in general? So salary is... is something that is very, very basic, of course. But are there also other claims? Well, well, lots, lots of different ones. It can be uh, like a personal injury claim when a seafarer uh, has had an accident on board. And the seafarer can have a claim arising from a wrongful dismissal. Mm-hmm. A seafarer can be an unjustly refused repatriation. It can be also a claim from the next of kin for the death of a seafarer. Yeah, there are quite quite some seafarers that die at sea. Um, well, and, and and many other types of claims. Okay, and uh, yes, and if if we then consider the amount of claims, and um, then the the problem of enforcement, if the enforcement does not work in such a case, the consequences are really really delicate for the ones at sea, for the ones far away from home. So let's talk about the enforcement. So. What if port states, da- if the port state does not come around? What if the ship owner refuses to pay the salary? There is not a minimum wage in the MLC, as we stated it already. Is there anything a seafarer can do? Yes, and then we, we sort of spiral back to the beginning of this yeah. part. Um, it's this right of recourse. Uh, he can arrest the vessel and possibly, if payment does not follow, judicially sell the vessel. Now, just for the audience, it's not like uh, seafarers are just selling ships left and right (laughs) in every port. Um, um, But there is a rather straightforward legal route if if you have that right of uh, recourse. And such a salary claim is easy to calculate, but it's much more difficult if it's not really clear what the seafarer is entitled to. So... MLC only provides a minimum general framework and you still have to figure out what jurisdiction applies, who to turn to, what national regulations prescribe. And in addition, MLC is a layered convention. There are binding rules and there are non-binding rules. All these things make it often difficult for a seafarer to make a clear direct appeal to MLC. 
Yeah, it sounds complex. And uh, as as non-lawyer, then it's it sounds even impossible. Um, yes, well, from yeah. a welfare point yeah. of view, these uh, this division into binding rules and non-binding rules makes it also difficult yeah. um, to to appeal to the MLC when it comes to shore leave, access to seafarers clubs if there are any, mm-hmm. healthcare like uh, a COVID vaccination, for instance. I am talking about port state now, but to give this example, uh, the Netherlands was at first first not willing to vaccinate foreign seafarers under foreign flags. And it took considerable pressure this year from seafarers' missions, from welfare organizations and port authorities to to change this view. So only from September 2021, uh, also other seafarers, uh, can be vaccinated in the port of Rotterdam. Yeah, very, very important rights. And uh, I mean, uh, that these are the basic rights all of us rely on. And uh, it, uh, yeah, it's, it seems quite hard for the seafarer to, to get access to these rights. Um, you said in our pre-meeting, Helena, uh, that the hesitation of the member states is great to allow access to shore and um, this problem also relates to the to the right of this of these states, the right of sovereignty. Um, so yeah, yeah, they, they certainly have the right to to demand all kinds of visa, and still not allow seafarers on their shore. I mean, uh, if if uh, the United States, for instance, uh, state a um, a ship as a terrorist threat because there's somebody called Mohammed on on board of the ship. Yeah then the crew is not allowed to, to go on board, uh, go on shore, if they give no permission. That sounds Period. insane. Well, they, will, they want the cargo, but they do not want the people, basically. Basically, yes. So, um, in the end, it is a mix of non-binding rules and a lack of enforcement. Um, there is a certificate uh, ship owners need to issue so that they comply with the MLC. Um, does this certificate have any value? Yes, I, I believe that the MLC certificate definitely has some value. It's actually, you said the ship owner issues this, but it's actually the ship owner applies yeah. for it. Okay. And there's like a authorities yeah. that check, do a checklist and see if they comply with MLC and then you get the certificate. But still, it's only a prior check of general minimum rights. Uh, and how the situation for seafarers actually is on board at sea is it's very difficult to check. Okay. Also, as Helena already said, there is a culture of fear. And many seafarers do not dare to stand up for their rights because they fear they will lose their job and will never sail as a seafarer again. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, experience has taught me that um, if I sense there's something wrong on a ship that I... Um, that I won't be too direct in my offer for help or involving all kinds of uh, of uh, instantian organizations, just to ask first, um, uh, what can I do for you, if anything? Yeah. Because, well, this culture of fear is there. Yeah, it shows how, how valuable your job is. Well, so, uh, that, yeah. that as well, I think, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much to you both. Um, the current situation may be described as toothless tiger uh, that is unable to catch his enemies. And uh, we will discuss possible solutions in the third part. Thank you very much for here. The Outlook. 
So Helena, you mentioned uh, the uh, the changes that were noticeable in in practice the MLC brought. Um, this gives me at least some hope that international efforts can change the situation even more. Um, Kirsten, do you think that there is a chance of MLC 2.1 or 2.0 even, <laughs> first of all? Well, I have to admit there have already been some amendments. Uh, yeah. So in MLC has been amended in 2014 and 2018. And some of these amendments relate to obligatory insurances mm -hmm. uh, for payment of group claims. And this is, this is an improvement. Um, but in practice, in some cases, uh, not every insurance company is very eager to pay out. Of course not. Yeah, <laughs> don't think they are ever. <laughs> well, sometimes. Uh, well, some are. We've seen in practice actually really forthcoming, but there's there are large differences, and and sometimes they're not very eager, um, and it can be due to bureaucracy, but sometimes it's just deliberate, uh, and this is of course not how it should be, but it's uh, the sad reality in some cases. Yeah. But after these amendments to MLC, um, I believe the convention could be a more effective and stronger instrument. Um, the basic minimum rights could be more specific and the non-binding rules could be binding. Yeah. And um, I think it is possible for state parties to overcome their hesitancy and find, you know, reach further agreement about a clearer set of binding rules. If the bar is set higher, then the sector will deal with it. That's just how the economy works. Yeah, true. Uh, important is that there is a level playing field and all the same rules apply to everyone. And then, well, maybe in the end, your package may be a little bit more expensive to ship. Yeah, that's true. But maybe we then we also think twice if we really need this charger again and again and not search for it. Maybe it's in the corner of our apartment. <laughs> something like this so um, yes you spoke about hesitancy and indeed it's an international effort that is required and international effort of course requires international willingness but I think it's too easy and this is what I wanted to uh, exemplify with my little example uh, it's too easy to just look at the states it concerns us all. And uh, our next episode, we will talk about the corporate social responsibility. And without increased awareness in society rules like the Supply Chain Act, um, these society rules would not have been drafted. So without Fridays for Future, people or states and governments would not have thought about uh, adjusting their laws. So it is necessary that we care more and that we all care but I can imagine that in particular the shipping industry has patterns that must be disruptants that the, that the patterns are quite strong well yes definitely and these patterns cannot be disrupted only with a with a convention yeah. there's a, a change of mindset required to, to change a culture of fear and to allow for easy, easier navigation amongst these all these different players and jurisdiction and to have more transparency about living and working conditions of seafarers. Yeah, talking about uh, transparency, I mean, um, I heard about uh, this so-called whistleblower system that was implemented in the MLC so that seafarers uh, can report um, 
some violations anonymously. Isn't this an option? Well, well, maybe I'm a too pessimistic, but I, I believe that such procedures are not enough. Uh, more is necessary to encourage whistleblowers to come forward. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that a culture of trust must be built. Um, um, you need trust with the, with the companies that the CFS do their job, with the CFS that the companies do their job, that Port State does its job. The trust you cannot build by only minimum standards and procedures. Um, and I think where, where seafarers take ownership um, is an important word, and, and where mental health of all concerned is, is important, and, 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 and patterns can be disrupted uh, yes. in that sense. <laughs> so uh, seafarers' missions and welfare organisations, they, they do try to facilitate seafarers and to, to equip them actually also in, in coming forward, not only as whistleblowers, but also as people who, um, they have their own responsibility as a professional. They are professionals in what they do, and they should be taken seriously. So in, in the end of the day, that, that is beneficial for the whole industry. Yeah, that's true. Um, and although I'm not quite that positive, <laughs> so I think trust is, trust is really important, but... Um, of course, we need to, to have an insured environment, maybe. And this is why, do you think that pressure can work to push us in this direction? Um, what do the ships do instead? So, Well, now the pressure, so we talked about MLC being ratified by more and more states, but you still see that there is uh, there are countries that did not ratify it. And... And, you know, some man managers, ship managers, ship owners, they make a clear choice. They just don't go to ports where MLC applies, apply. They don't fly an MLC flag. That's a choice you can make now as well. But can you, can you really make this? So I, I can imagine that routes always need to be uh, organized in a way that they end up being It's true, in Europe. but there's... Even it goes even further than that. It's yeah. just not uh, ratification or not, but it's also that there is quite a gap between the way that port states intervene. Some flag states are, they don't really do things. And some states are quite active in yeah, intervening. Okay. Yeah. And uh, of course, it's getting more difficult uh, when it applies in more countries, but still there are some options to sail in certain areas where yeah. there is no real MLC coverage. And this relates then to the trust that we can at least trust that the rules uh, can be enforced and that there is protection. Yeah, but also f from the other side around, uh, to trust that, that things are being done all right. Yeah. But that's another topic. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, so Kirsten, you mentioned that the MLC is not the standard, but rather a minimum standard. Uh, what are further obstacles for this improvement? Well, I, I keep uh, saying that MLC is a minimum convention, like a minimum standard convention, because what you see otherwise is, and, and this actually happens in practice, is that the sector labels the minimum as the standard. Yeah. So anything above the minimum is seen as an extra, an extra the seafarers get. And then, in essence, you lower the bar. Yeah. But... The MLC binding rules at this moment are, well, from a 
Dutch perspective, uh, Western Europe perspective, they're like the bare minimum and for good working conditions, uh, as we see it, more is needed. Especially when there are problems for seafarers to claim their rights, uh, such as we already discussed. Yeah. Okay, um, and Helena, what would be the major improvements content-wise that would help the seafarer? Well, just make those guidelines in the MLC mandatory. Just yeah. make them mandatory that it should be a, at least a minimum standard. Yeah, true. But okay, then there is this other problem with enforcement. Um, any suggestions from your side? I mean, you are both experts in the field. Um, well, when we focus at the problems, and, and I have to say that, you know, there are also cases where things go well. Um, Good to hear. Yes, um, <laughs> we're uh, specifically foca focusing on the problems now, of course. Well, I think there could be more severe sanctions and, and uh, flag states and port states can be more active. I already said that some states are yeah, not that eager to intervene and they, there could be more uniformity in their compliancy policies, so, so line it up better. But it must be easier for seafarers to claim as well. Um, and I think there are many ways to think about it. I, I mean, I'm not a legislator or, or a part of the drafting committee of the convention, but from my practice I see that there's quite a barrier for seafarers to consult uh, like a lawyer if they're in trouble. And it's easy um, maybe to obligate ship owners to have legal expenses insurance for their seafarers so that they would be entitled to paid legal aid. Yeah. Uh, it maybe sounds counterintuitive, but I think the situation in the maritime sector would really justify such, such a measure. And also another problem we see in practice is that if you're like a claiming party, you have to prove your rights. So True, yes. if a seafarer says, I have an accident, he has to prove he had the accident and it was during work and what has happened. And then you see it's their word against the word of the employer. Yeah. And sometimes, well, all of a sudden, the employer comes up with logbooks or incidents reports that show that nothing has happened. Or, and that that still happens, is that a ship has a double administration. So when we look at work and rest hours, they have the administration to show to the authorities and they have the real administration. Oh, okay. Yeah, so and we, then... Yeah, and then you see that seafarers work... I mean, already MLC gives, a, you know, you can make 12 hours a day, seven days a week on end all the time, according to MLC. But you see that even those minimum guidelines are not followed in yeah. reality and this you know this results in can result in com fatigue at work and accidents as well so i think another solution in that direction would be uh, to place the burden of proof in some of these cases more upon the employer yeah okay yeah you know, regarding mlc i just second that yeah, I can't say more. <laughs> no, but yeah, truly. Well, it, it, with regards to the minimum uh, wage, it really sounds like modern uh, uh, minimum times. It really sounds like slavery sometimes. Um, I think these aspects you mentioned um, are really, really important. And it is important that not only our students, but everyone is aware of the challenges and risks a seafarer has to face. 
I recently looked up some code of conduct um, of the fashion manufacturers. So all the green labels, not all of them, a few of them. It is a big progress that we now have these green, uh, green labels and that the green labels provide transparency over the production process. So we know what the working conditions, or at least they try to give us more information on the working in conditions of employees in the factories, at cotton yards. However, the information on transport and the working conditions of the employees in the sector are usually missing. So we as consumer must understand that, for instance, seafarer are part of the supply chain and that their fate must concern us, same as an employee in Bangladesh or in a yarn factory anywhere. Yeah, that, that's correct. But the problem is, I mean, you can walk into a factory, but we yeah. cannot see on board at sea what happens. There's no oversight. So I think the import, most important thing is that there is international pressure. So at a state level, but most of all from the public, from the consumer, that the working conditions at sea should be good. And we've seen this with like uh, coffee beans and cocoa plants. Um, you know, we all want to buy fair trade chocolate. Yeah. Um, but I do not think that a product that has a fair trade label isn't necessarily traded overseas by seafarers who have good working conditions. True. Yeah. So you see this information is just not available. So transparency is key in order to create international pressure and in the end, there should be like a sort of intrinsic motivation within the shipping world to better the lives of seafarers. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and also the, the realization that 90% of all our goods and worldwide are being transported overseas. So it doesn't get here by itself and it needs seafarers to bring it to us. Yeah, so and we should definitely stop ignoring their faith and... Uh, um, yeah, all their difficulties they have to, to face. So I do not want to victimize them. <laughs> no, no, but that's just <laughs> let's realize what's going on. Yeah, that's true. So thank you very much to you both for explaining everything in detail. I hope we could raise awareness for the very important topic. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. We hear each other next time and stay tuned and curious. Thank you very much. Thank you.